Hello, everybody, and welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Donya. I'm Brian. Hello. And we have Natan Kemp with us today. Natan is um. So I'm gonna give y'all a little background. Natan is my my cousin, Brian's cousin. And it's so funny because when I first met Natan, Natan is another one of my mentors, like um, Bernice was. And when I first met Natan, we didn't know that we were related to each other, but we did know that her, what, what was James to you? My grandfather's older brother. Okay, her grandfather's older brother was at one point married to my grandmother's sister. So we knew that. And then once we did, my mom did the DNA because I was like the last one to get somebody tested as far as the DNA was concerned. And my mom did the DNA. And once my mom did the DNA, Natan popped up like second cousin. And there it was. Bow. We were we were now blood relatives. So I want everybody to please welcome um, Natan Kemp. She is a genealogist, an author, and a historian. Not necessarily in that order, but... That's who she is. So please welcome Natan. How are you, Natan? Great. Thank you for inviting me. That's good. I, hey, you know, we, we that had to be. It's part of our theme today. You know, this this season is all about supporting, uplifting, you know, our African-American genealogists and just just trying to let people know that there are others out there that know that information just like everybody else, we tend to just, we, we have our focuses. And the great thing about Natan today, guys, is that not only does she do research in Edgefield in the South Carolina area, but she also, like Brian, has a lot of background in history for research in Virginia. So you guys, this is like um, a, a, a great new thing right here. So um, Brian, you wanna say some of the comments real quick? Okay. Yep. Really, really happy to have you on the show. So shout out to our cousin, Stephanie Boren. Um, she was in there straight away wa watching us. So hi, Stephanie, glad to have you with us. You've got Mary Wright watching from Maryland. Uh, Martha Marsha Taylor, hi to you too. Uh, Deborah Singleton from Chicago and Toy Wright Anders. Uh, so hello for all of, to all of you joining us. And Yay. as always, we hope, we hope that you have, you know, that you take a lot away from today's show. Yes, today's show is going to be awesome. So let's just jump right in on it. Um, Nathan, why don't you talk about how you got started in your research? I got started in several years, well, a couple of decades ago. My mother started researching her maternal line from Abbeville, South Carolina. And I decided not to duplicate her efforts and research my father's line. My father died when I was four years old. So my mother suggested that I reach out to one of his siblings and reaching out to, one, to her, she provided me information based on her conversations with her mother, my paternal grandmother. Okay. And from there, I, I, I did the ancestry boards, a message boards, and I met two cousins early on, Valoria Otterway and Samara Thurmond, both prominent researchers in Edgefield, South Carolina. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. So what made um, you go ahead? I was gonna say that 
I started off, so doing my own research on my individual lines. Um, and between 2011 and uh, 2013, I acted as editor of Home Place, which was then the official newsletter of the old Edgefield District African-American Genealogical Society. It was a great experience because it exposed me to other families and other locations within the old Edgefield District. Okay. All right. Brian, you have a question? No, I was going to share the other side of the coin with uh, with Natan. Going, it's really kind of an incredible journey when you're coming across family names that you have never heard in the entirety of your life. And they start developing characters and personalities, and you can tell the difference between family A and family B and family C, and it really does become a deeply kind of personal, personal journey and personal thing. Um, so considering I never even heard the name Edgefield until I was in my 30s, um, to have gotten as far as I've gotten and kind of gained the understanding that I have, looking forward to more discoveries and more knowledge, it's just a really, really powerful, empowering thing. It is. When my aunt first gave me information, she didn't specifically mention Edgefield. She mentioned McCormick County. McCormick County was formed in 1916 out of Edgefield, Abbeville, and Greenwood. And it was as I started researching the family line chronologically backwards that I discovered that, okay, they're in McCormick County, but then when I go back to 1910, they were in Edgefield. So right there, I stumbled across the formation of a county and that mm -hmm. my ancestors were in a different location than I anticipated they would be in for you know, most of their time. And so <clears throat> that's something that confused me to no end when I, when I first started, maybe about 12 or 13 years ago, seeing things like a township called Saluda in Edgefield and that it just seemingly disappeared. But then I didn't realize, oh, well, that's because it became part of Saluda. So, you know, Donnie and I did a really wonderful show about why it's important to understand the geography of where your ancestors came from, because those boundaries are just, they were just shifting all the time. Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing that I wanted to say, oh, well, Donnie hasn't introduced the book yet, but she, she will do soon. Um, you as a writer, you, you know, you do have a, you have a real talent in terms of making inanimate places have characters and personalities. Um, and I just wanted to say that, 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 that is a real talent to, um, to be able to have. Well, so that's, you. A, that's a segue. Before you say anything else, Natan, let me, that's a segue into the book. So Natan and, um, Natan and, and our late cousin Gail Bush wrote an awesome book called There is Something About Edgefield Shining a Light on the, okay, you got to give me on that part. On the Black community. <laughs> yes, on the Black community. And that book, what Brian is talking about is the fact that Natan was able to take a particular area and bring it to life. Like her, 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 her writing on the dark corner was so profound and so great. Those were that particular area of the book was, as far as Natan was concerned. And then where Gail was concerned, where she spoke about her maternal line ending. Now you guys, I don't know if y'all ever thought about your maternal line ending. I've always thought about the father's line. Everybody thinks about the dad's line ending and so on. But how many people actually think about the last child born, the last 
female child born. When I tell you guys that I was in complete and total tears when I read that particular story, I, it made me start looking back like, well, wait a minute, is uh, my mom, was my mother's maternal line ending? I started counting it and just trying to find and figure it out. And it was one of the best. Those two areas in that book was my favorite. So, Natan, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about why you started writing about the dark corner? Well, let me say first that Edgefield lends itself to easy description because of the characteristics of the people who were prominent figures in Edgefield. As an example, uh, there was someone by the name of, he was a governor at one point and later a U.S. senator, Benjamin Pitchfork, which was nicknamed Tillman. <laughs> he had, he was not ashamed of what the whites tried to do to suppress Blacks voting during Reconstruction and as the Jim Crow era started. He has a quote where he says that if two people from Edgefield insult one another, there's either a fight or a funeral. That gives you an example about the folks from Edgefield. <laughs> Regarding the dark corner, I stumbled across that name because there was a killing at the height of Reconstruction in January of 1872, where Columbus L. Blair shot and killed, uh, purportedly in self-defense, uh, a young, it turns out a young colored boy, the newspaper didn't mention his age, I determined it from the census, named Peter Wilkes. And it was in Rocky Ponds, I believe, in the area of the dark corner. And so I, you know, I, Pause when I saw that name, Dark Corner, and I did some uh, research, and I I discovered that some folks in South Carolina actually viewed the entire county of Edgefield as a dark corner, <laughs> but it was actually a specific area of Edgefield, right. Right. where seems to be the area most resistant to changes uh, prompted by the end of the Civil War, and the Edgefield plan that restored the Democratic whites to power in 1876 was created in the dark corner. Okay. So the dark corner really, really stands out uh, as sort of the, the epicenter of a lot of resistance to changes as a result of the Civil War. But again, it's the, it's the, the character and the flavor that you gave that place. I couldn't put that chapter down. Once I started reading it, I was just gripped because one, yeah. I had I had never heard of the dark corner before, um, and I I just found the the whole kind of history fascinating. Um, but because I know that this you have a you have a research strategy, partly that informed the book, but also partly that um that informs your working practice. And I just wanted to spend a little time talking about how you go about formulating a research strategy. It's something that Donnie and I kind of stress with um with the audience. Yeah. Um. Just to give you some background, Gail's two chapters are fabulous in so many ways. And one way is because she has her ancestors, there are a lot of footprints. Her In her paternal chapter, the first one, it turns out her great-grandfather owned land. This is someone who was born a slave, but shortly after the war ended, within 10 or 12 years, he owned just under 260 acres. 
and he died and there was litigation. So you have a lot of footprints. With her maternal line, it turns out that they were the subject of litigation. And in that litigation, one of the witnesses testified the women are breeders. Yeah. So she had firsthand account of her maternal ancestors being breeders. And this was something that uh, was a result of the, um, the exclusion of importing additional slaves after the law um, in 1808. So what these Southerner plantation owners would do is encourage their slaves to have more children. I didn't have that with my ancestors. The Blairs were there, they lived a long time, but didn't have that much of a footprint. And so my strategy was there's a skeleton, which is what I know about my ancestors and what I can put together. And that's beyond just birth, marriages, and death. They didn't own any land, but it turns out my second great-grandfather, Nathaniel Blair, was a deacon. Once I did that, then I determined that to add flesh to the skeleton, I need to look at the wider community to help get a sense. I did that in several ways. I looked at the local newspaper, the Edgefield Advertiser. Boy, does that give you a sense of the views of folks <laughs> in Edgefield. <laughs> it's very clear how they feel. Yes. I also took a deep dive with the census. I can't recall what it is, but there are, are deeper uh, analyses of the uh, population schedule. So for 1920, I'm able to look at McCormick County where my ancestors live and I could look at literacy rates. My second great grandfather, Nathaniel Blair, could read and write in 1920. But prior to 1920, in every census back to 1870, he could not read and could not write. I cannot say with absolute, absolute certainty how he learned to read or write, but it was probably one or a couple possibilities. Number one, he was the father of 16 children his children attended school. So maybe he learned from them. Number two, he was a deacon at Mount Lebanon Baptist Church. So I know he had a burning desire to be able to read the word of God. There also were night schools. So he may have taken advantage of that. And speaking of that, so besides looking at the population, detailed population records regarding uh, literacy rates, black, white breakdowns, uh, other races, usually Indians. I also found a state report regarding illiteracy in South Carolina. This report was uh, issued in 1919 and it was based on the 1910 census. It listed, I think over 23 counties in, Edge, in South Carolina where the black illiteracy rate was 25% or higher. Um, and South Carolina acknowledged in that report that their, their illiteracy issue was basically a Negro problem. And the Negro problem, problem was they had a large, sizable population, one-fifth, who could not read or write. And this was generally those individuals who were born during slavery, where they were prohibited from learning to read and write. But the right. state did not take any measures to try to educate them. And they finally realized they needed to do something. So that's some of the way I try to add flesh to the bone to give more insight into what was going on in South Carolina, or, and particularly in Edgefield at that time. 
Well, actually, it's interesting you should mention that because um, Donnie and I were doing some research yesterday. We were looking at uh, labor contracts on the Freedman Bureau on, fa on family search. And all of a sudden started seeing these work contracts between white women who had formerly been enslavers through their husbands or in their own right, who were illiterate. You were literally seeing, you just, so you're looking at work, the labor contracts for the white men, they signed their names, but I must've looked at work contracts for about five different white women. They just had their mark. Yeah. So there was, even, there was even a disparity there between the literacy rate between white men and white women. Yeah. Which I hadn't even I hadn't even considered that. Neither have I. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, we did. We saw a lot of that yesterday, and um, it it was really kind of eye opening to see the to learn how much white women were just as were not just as, but they were downtrodden and down thought about, you know, downed like black people in general. They were, you know, they were they were just as much. They were second class too. You know, they were second class citizens. They didn't have as many rights. And you, you started to learn about it. You don't realize how much you learn about somebody else's rights until you're looking at it. And you, yeah. you start pulling it up and you start reading about it and you start seeing those similarities in certain things. I am not one here. I'm not going to sit here and say that black people and, and white women have the same had the same, you know, issues and problems and so on and so forth. You won't hear that from me because at that particular moment, they did not. But there were some similarities in some ways, shapes and forms when it came to that kind of stuff. And, and we, we need to recognize that in order for us, you know, to really better understand what happened then so we can know what's going on now. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. And that uh, highlights something that people may overlook. I wanted to follow up with uh, my response earlier. And I mentioned how w the Southern whites were restored to power with the election of 1876. That's another avenue where I looked at congressional testimony regarding disputed elections with the election of 1876. And I quoted portions of testimony from black males and white males. And it was an interesting contrast in terms of what the blacks were saying or the colored folks were saying about what happened, how they were prevented from voting, um, how they were badgered, even threatened. And then what whites were saying, one white uh, witness that I quoted. So that was also helped to give a sense of what was going on in Edgefield. And I want to mention one other point that I think a lot of people are unaware of. The very first opportunity for freedmen to vote in a presidential election was in 1868. That election occurred everywhere in South Carolina, but in Edgefield. <laughs> yep, that's true. <sighs> and it is because the white Democrats threatened the Blacks so much, they were too afraid to open the polls. And I have, I quote testimony from a, a gentleman who was a radical Republican named Lawrence Kane, prominent in Edgefield. He died so young that he's been forgotten over time. And he actually quoted the number of colored voters versus white voters at the time of the 1868 election. The Black uh, colored vote, voter registration was almost 5,000 
and the white voters were about 2,500. So it shows you the color population had the numbers. And what whites did to uh, still exert themselves politically was through fear and intimidation. Wow. And again, that's, I, we always stress in, you know, in our broadcasts that history and genealogy go hand in hand. It literally is hand in glove. You, you really can't have one without having the other because I want to know that the internal and the external forces that acted on my ancestors because it, can't, it helps me and visualize or understand why they made the decisions that they did, why they may have moved, why they may have changed their names, all those kind of little things. So what you're talking about now, everyone in the country is like, how do, you know, how do we get here? How did things become so polarized between Republicans and Democrats? If you look at 18, you know, that 1868, that you know, 1870 period, it's today. It's today. It's just, you know, it, it was just back then. Um, it, in many ways, it's like we've come full, full circle. Right. There are a lot of parallels between the 1876 election and the 2016 election, starting off with the uh, presidential candidate who lost the popular vote ended up being the president of the United States, <laughs> number one. Number two, I would also say that the 1876 election was a backlash against Reconstruction. And in many ways, the 2016 election was a backlash against Barack Obama's presidency. Yeah. yeah. And again, in terms of Edgefield, the reason why Donnie and I kind of discussed this quite a bit is, you know, we had those two awful uh, voter suppression riots, both the Phoenix riots and the the Green... Oh, I forgot the other one. Phoenix, and what's the name of the other one? Parkville. No, no, no. The the two riots that happened. There was the Phoenix riot and there's the, the other riot. Um, but anyway... Is it in that, 1876? No. Yeah. These riots okay. happened after the... Okay. Um, after after the Dark Corner riot, both okay. of them, there were two more riots that happened after the Dark Corner Parksville riot, and um, one of them was Phoenix, and I can't think of the other one because the other one, other was one. After, yeah. But I mentioned them because they had a profound impact on our family. One, it explained why a couple of people you couldn't find them anymore because they were lynched and killed. Yeah. But then you also see where a lot of our families started leave, migrating out of Edgefield because they yeah, just they didn't, feel, they didn't feel safe. So right. that understand finding out about those um, two riots helped me understand why so many of our relations were leaving Edgefield way before those um, those early kind of African American migrations out of the South. In a right. lot of ways, a lot of ways, our old ninety I should call them the, our old ninety six ancestors. Um, were actually the precursors for that whole movement. <laughs> I agree. Um, I want to. I want to sit up here. I want to make some acknowledgments to some of our uh, listeners. Kevin Thomas is here. He says hello, cousin Kevin from San Antonio. So one of the things, just to let you know, Nathan, is that we have people from everywhere that con that joins us. And it's really exciting because sometimes they come from Hawaii, sometimes they come from Denmark, sometimes, you know, they come, they just come from all over the world. And it's just so, it's so exciting to see that. And Kevin is from San Antonio, Texas. We have Anessa from Oberlin, Ohio. And then there's Denmark, Karen from Denmark. That's, and she is actually possibly our cousin. Wow. So we're working on, yeah, we're working on that. 
And then we have James Morgan, who is also a family member of ours, if I'm not mistaken. He actually wanted to agree with us by saying history and genealogy are eternally linked. To, know, to not know one is to dishonor the other. That is so powerful and so true. And um, yes, and then we, Kevin responded and said, yes, it's impossible to do genealogy without studying history and human migration patterns. And then we have our cousin Philly from Philly Logan. He is from um, Hawaii, saying yes, hello, 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 hello to all. <laughs> and Toy is from Atlanta. Hey, Toy, again. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to say that. But I also um, wanted to bring up, you know, Another thing that you are very good at doing as far as researching is concerned when it comes to finding folks. Now, I know you wrote this awesome article um, for Virginia and doing the research using the 1890, you know, missing the 1890 census because the 1890 census literally took 20 years away from everybody. You know, we like you said, like you and I talked about yesterday, I think it was, um, we had just become free and, and placed on the census in 1870. And then we missed 20, we get 1880 and then we miss another 20 years. And it's, it's, you know, it's crazy. So why don't you share with our group how you got through 1890? Well, I, I want to say that the article that I wrote was for Edgefield. It's titled Stumbling Without the 1890 Census. And Basically, I started researching the Kemp line prior to access with all the digitized records. And I actually visited the National Archives. I'm a native Washingtonian, so I went to the National Archives and started using the sound decks to go backwards chronologically. And I thought I had all the information on my Kemp line. And it was Bernice Bennett after meeting a cousin, another Kemp cousin in Silver Spring, Maryland, who started to wonder if my James was the wrong James Kemp. And that led me to start looking at that from a really different perspective. What did I do wrong? Retrace my steps. And what I did was I looked at information from different sources and Someone, another Kemp descendant, had mentioned that the Kemp and Petersons go a long way back. And when he said that, I started looking at the census records closely. And just a long story short, I noticed that there were two families in Blocker Township in 1870, George Kemp and his wife, Elizabeth, and Joshua Peterson and his wife, Laura. But in 1880, there was just... Joshua Peterson and his wife, Lizzie. And I'm like, where is my James Kemp? And it turns out, luckily, as I looked at things once again, is that he was living with Joshua Peterson. And he's listed as a Kemp, spelled with an I instead of an E. But what confirmed it for me was there was a Colonel, age one, in the Kemp household in 1870, and the Colonel Peterson in 1880 in the Joshua Peterson household. And what I realized is that George Kemp died, Laura Holloway Peterson died, and the surviving spouses married one another and their families blended. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. And and my second great grandparents were steps uh, were stepsister and brother living together before they got married. And what threw me off was that her name is Sarah Ann Peterson. And every census, she is Sarah Ann, except for one census, she's listed as Ann. And the age was different from what I saw on the sound decks versus when I looked at the digitized records and I had to go back. That four looked like a nine, so it threw me off. So I thought she was 19 when she was, I thought she was 14, it turns out she was 19. So that threw me off as well because Sarah Ann Peterson Kemp is three years older or was three years older than her husband. So it took a lot of work to do all that. And besides looking just at the census records, 1870 and 1880, I turned to the death certificates and for three of Elizabeth, also known as Lizzie, Barry Kemp Peterson, one son's death certificate said his mother's name was Elizabeth Barry. One said it was Lizzie Peterson. And one, I think, <laughs> said it was uh, Lizzie Kemp. So I was able to piece everything together that way. Um, South Carolina didn't give me a lot of other resources, but fortunately, just looking at the census records and death certificates, I was able to piece together and figure out how the family had blended. And again, but that, a, I was going to say that's a really interesting point, because, again, we talk about blended families being a modern thing, but they're not. I mean, whether I'm looking at my white colonial ancestors or you know, my, my black ancestors, Blended families aren't anything new. I mean, the reasons behind blended families may have changed. Like I said, back then, it was mostly because of death. Um, but again, that's, that, as you said, that's a really important thing to, um, to keep an eye out for. And Lord knows Donnie and I have suffered with that numerous times. I, I don't, I just get headaches. Kevin actually um, just responded saying Peterson line always pops up and he, and he knows that he'll send me messages on Facebook every now and then talking about, I'm sick of these Petersons. And I'm like, well, get in line. We all are because <laughs> they just, they just do their own thing, you know, but I want you to get into, you know, Virginia too, because I think that's you and Brian have, I'm not able to get into the Virginia research because with my mother, both both of her parents are from Edgefield and her parents' parents and her parents' parents and I think even her parents' parents' parents. So she has like three extra generations that got me stuck in that area for right now. Even though I know that that following generation goes into Virginia, I haven't been able to go that route yet because I'm still digging with those children and the children's children and so on and so forth. So the two of you are very good at the Virginia research with, because I guess what I'm trying to say is with genealogy, you have a genealogist that have their niche in certain states. You guys are blessed to be able to say, I have a niche in South Carolina and I have a niche in Virginia. So why don't you tell them more about that particular 1890 document I mean, that, that article that you did that really caught attention in Virginia as far as your researching and the different places. And you tell me what resources to post up and I can post them up. Okay, I think what you may be discussing is I was able to identify the slave owner 
for some Virginia ancestors. And I was able to, to do that based on, for those who research in Virginia, there is a Virginia slave birth index. And it covers the period 1853 to 1865. Why does it cover that time frame? Because Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia began mandating registering births, all births and deaths in Virginia in 1853. And I believe it was during, um, this, the slave index was first compiled, I think during um, the 1930s. But anyway, the information is available and I was able to trace a particular family by using what I knew of the mother's name, the, the, the births of the children. And you can do this either through, one easy way is going on family search. You go on the Virginia, and I think they have Virginia births and christenings. And I typed in the name of the mother, typed in the name of the baby, typed in the location, either the county or the city where the birth took place. And it gives me possibilities that meet my criteria. And I was able to identify uh, the slave owner for three of my fourth grade grandmother, just using that tactic. And I called it a four-step process, four steps to identifying the Virginia slave owner. So that's slightly different from the research I do for what I, the, the strategies I use for 1890, what to do in lieu of that missing 1890 census. Okay. Well, I was also talking another resource that I think other Southern states had it, but they seem to be easier to find for Virginia, the 1866 cohabitation register. Not, yes. that they, not that they survive in all of the counties, but for the one, the counties where they do survive, that 1866 cohabitation register was almost like the first census of freed men and freed women. Wow. And then you have other counties, again, it's a, it's a similar format, but it records the children who are orphaned in 1866. So you get a cohabitation register, you get an orphan register. Wow, that is include, true. And they, you know, they include things like the last enslaver that they had, where the enslaved person was born, where they were living at that moment. I think even roughly when they got married, their ages, the ages of their children. So again, that, that's another, in terms of Virginia, that's just an amazing, amazing resource to use. I like to add on, it's a great resource, but based on my research, those cohabitation registers vary from county to county. Louisa County, Virginia has to be one of the worst ones. And I say this uh. in this regards, they don't even provide the maiden name of the bride. Oh, wow. Caroline County will provide you the maiden name of the bride, the name of the last, uh, the last slave owner, where they, the slaves live, the name of the children. Hanover County is great because they provide the name of the parents for the bride and the groom, which takes you back another generation. So for me, I know the names of my six step great grandparents who were born just after um, the American Revolution because of that Hanover County cohabitation register. So the information does vary a little bit. Um, and, I, and my experience has been Louisa County gives you the least amount of information. Oh, that's a shame. Because that's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I'm specifically thinking about Wythe County, which is all the way buried down in the southwest of Virginia. 
just such a rural, rural place. The level of information that they gave was just phenomenal. It was just phenomenal. Um, so does that Virginia, does that Virginia um, slave information, is that, a, is that a website? You can get it on Family Search. Yes, I believe you can get it on Family Search. There's also, if you go to places uh, like the, the Doors of American Revolution Library, they have it in hardbound books. Okay. I just um, asked yep. that because we had somebody that asked, can you post that please as far as the Virginia slave stuff? Um, somebody else asked the question that says, have the Virginia borders always been the same? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we all can say no one now. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the board, wherever you see the Virginia borders today, they change. It changed between Virginia and North Carolina, Virginia and Tennessee, Virginia and Kentucky. Correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think, I, I think even between Virginia and Maryland. And don't, I mean, don't forget, at one point during the colonial period, the Virginia government overthrew the Maryland government because they were upset that Maryland was Catholic, and yeah. they had a huge they had a huge falling out with the the Culvert family. So yeah, th those boundaries were changing left, right, and center. Even yeah, the um, there are counties mm -hmm. that don't exist anymore in Virginia, and that's everywhere. I mean, there are counties that don't you know don't exist in, in a lot of places. But I wanted to ask you, this is something that I've been trying to do as far as South Carolina is concerned. I'm trying to get this information. I probably won't be able to get it until I get down there. There isn't anywhere online that I have found where we know when these townships in the Edgefield area were created. So, for example, Greenwood was um, surveyed by the white Yeldale, William Yeldale. And he was, and basically they kind of, Greenwood came from him. I don't know why that name Greenwood is so significant to Yeldales, but it came from him. And he was the reason for Greenwood being surveyed the way that it was. This is, I found this in a, in a newspaper article where they were um, honoring him. But there was a township called Yeldale Township in Greenwood. And then it just disappeared. So I'm trying to know what is the best way for a person to learn more about the townships? Because we have a lot of townships, Hibbler, Blocker, Gray, you know, all of them, Washington. We, I want to know when they disappeared, where they were. I'm trying to learn their boundaries and their lines to figure out exactly how close they were. Do you have any, any suggestions as to how to find that out? I have a couple of ideas in mind. Number one, the militia enrollments of 1869, is it? Or is it 1868? Maybe helpful because it gives you names of the area where the individual, the, the male who had to register for the militia resided. That's where I first saw the name Rocky Pond, uh, which is in the dark corner where my Blair ancestors uh, resided. Also, this may be an unusual suggestion, there were a lot of post offices around. Some of those post offices took the names of a town that they were nearby and you get the name. I think there's a list. Um, if you Google it, it should pop up for South Carolina post offices, historical post offices. Yeah. And it gives you the name of the postmaster. 
So that also may be helpful. Maybe researching that individual, researching the name uh, can give you some idea about the origins and maybe when uh, either the name of the town changed those are a couple suggestions. I mean, it, may, it could be an instance like Hamburg, which is basically sort of wiped off the map. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that Aiken maybe? now? Isn't a Hamburg Aiken or had some pieces? Of well, Hamburg as a town does not exist today. And Hamburg was right across from Augusta, Georgia. Okay. Okay. So that, that's, that's over where Aiken is now. Am I correct? Yes, because Aiken was formed in March of 1871 out of Edgefield, I believe. Mm -hmm. And Hamburg was part of it was was part of the, the new county of Aiken when it was formed. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought. So I'm I'm good with the when those those areas were were created. I'm 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 kind of good with that. That I'm I'm good with. But I'm like, well, when was these townships like? I, I need to know more about the township. So I have, I have an that? idea. Go ahead. Have, maybe it might be worth going to the Smithsonian or contacting the Smithsonian to see if they have really early survey maps of, ah. that, of that part of South Carolina. Because I'm with you. I mean, I, I went to uh, Google Maps, like anyone else, typed in Blocker, Gray, Hibbler, Talber, all those kind of old 96 towns, nothing. Nothing. I want to mention there is a book and I I mentioned the post offices because they each have their individual seal too. So there is a book at the archives, South Carolina Department of Archives and History, where I believe two gentlemen self-published a book about uh, post offices of South Carolina. Um, And I think that information also may be at the, in terms of the, the post offices themselves, historical post offices, I believe that information may be at the National Archives. But um, another possible resource is going to Chronicling America to see maybe where names of some of the townships may first be mentioned. Also, the name of the gentleman who wrote the history on Edgefield, his name escapes me right now. But his book may be the source to go to regarding names. Let me give you an example. The name Dark Corner. Some people may think, why? Were there a lot of slaves there? No. The name Dark Corner uh, was given supposedly because someone wanted to start a newspaper in the area. Nobody was interested. He He complained about those dang people in the Dark Corner because they didn't want a newspaper. And the name stuck. Wow. Well, actually, the, the thing from your chapter that really leapt out at me, I hadn't even considered it. The, the white gentleman of the dark corner had such a bad reputation that they actually found it hard. To, and they had money. These men had yes. money. That they actually found it hard to get wives because they had yes. that bad of a reputation. Mm. <laughs> well, and I, I, I picked that up, too. <laughs> yes. I wanted, uh, well, Grace Miller has heard, she wanted to say that we can look at the Sanborn maps. Um, that's what Insurance she, maps. I, if that's what she saw. I don't know. You guys are teaching me something right now. And then um, Deborah Singleton, she asked the question, did some of the Yeldos migrate to Alabama? Girl, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> a whole lot of them. A whole lot of them migrated to Alabama. Um, they they migrated to Alabama. They migrated to Texas. They migrated to Louisiana. Um, they were every. They they are everywhere. But the thing about the Yaledales is that they hide. They change their last names, so they could be anywhere and. And you not know it. Like we were just talking before the show started, as far as Yildiz was concerned, and we talked about this one guy named Shepard Harrison, and he had, was just turning 102 years old. And um, they were interviewing him in the newspaper, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I'm ready, Yildiz. I took on the last name Harris." This man had 16 children. All 16 children had the last name Harrison, but they carried the bloodline of the Yildiz. So after I almost, after, you know, Brian talked me down from slitting my wrist, <laughs> you know, we then had to look at Shepard Harrison and his children knowing that they were actually Yaledales, even though they don't know it. And then another connection between Natan and I is that her dark corner is where my John Yaledales incident actually happened. So we have these two books that talk about this same area, but in, in what happened in the area and she gives the why it happens. So it's actually really, it's, it's a, it's a great story. And um, yeah, there, and that's yet another person that changed his name as well. Um, it's one yeah, more question. Yeah. And then I want to ask, I want to go to something else with Natan. Philly from Philly Logan said, did the Palmores also migrate west or did they stay mainly in the in Edgefield? I haven't looked at the windows. Can you answer that, Natan? Because I know that um, that was one of the areas that Gail was researching. Yes, I don't know about their migration patterns, unfortunately. I, I know that's a surname among the ones she was researching. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's okay. Deborah, then that means that if your DNA cousins, yeah, it's Butler, Alabama. That's, that's Yildiz. So, Brian, was you getting ready to say something before I ask Nathan this next question? Oh, no, I was just going to say that um, I hadn't looked at the Palmores, really. I mean, I've got them in my tree, but I haven't researched them. Yeah, I, they, they connect to my Yildiz. The Palmores connect. Matter of fact, I think that was one of the ways my Palmore the Palmores that connect to my Yeldells are the lost Palmores that Gail was talking about. <laughs> so because there's a lost set, if I'm not mistaken, she said there's a set that just kind of disappeared and it ended up being them. That was, they were the ones. So Mary Palmore married my, my great uncle, um, Gary Yeldale, and then she also did some other stuff, but I refuse to talk about that. So, um, Nathan, what yes. other things are you doing, you know, to to further your research? I know you 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 want to talk about your publishing company. I mean, you you're just like really hitting that speaking circuit. What's going on with you? What other things are you doing? Well, thank you. Uh, the publishing company is Rocky Con Press. I have two prospective clients right now. One has a, a manuscript on genealogy and history, and one that's 
non-genealogy related. Um, so if you're interested in having your manuscript published, you can reach out to me. Um, I think the information is available on the, the website, but you can also email me at rockypondpress at gmail.com. In terms of speaking engagements, I will be speaking May 4th at the Family History Center for Washington, D.C. They're actually located in Kensington, Maryland, and I will be giving a presentation on self-publishing your family history. Brilliant. That's awesome. And I'm also uh, in the works of, uh, I'm on the calendar to speak at the South Carolina Geological Society's summer workshop in July on illuminating the dark corner and talking about how DNA helped or aided uh, Gail's and, and my research. So we've actually had a couple, not today, but over the course of genealogy adventures, we have had a lot of questions about writing your family history. I think we got the most of them when Donnie was talking about um, her book. And what would you say is probably the how do I want to phrase this? The, the more challenging aspects and the, and the, the positive aspects of, of writing your family history. I, I think uh, a challenging aspect of writing your family history is not to be so narrowly focused on your family. <laughs> if your family, if your ancestors were involved in, in a war, in some major event, I think it's easy to develop a story around that because people can relate who are not directly related to you. I'll, I'll never forget uh, a cousin said to me when I showed her part of, of a chapter that I wrote, she goes, this was early on, she goes, well, that's nice, but you know, who wants to read about your family? And my mother always told me to, who is your audience? And so I, I say it's important to keep in mind your, who you believe your audience may be. So you want to write to who you believe that audience will be, whether it's uh, you're focusing on ethnicity, you're focusing on religion, you're mm -hmm. focusing on geographical area, you're, foc you're focusing on war. So I, I would say that's some of the challenges. Uh, it's rewarding to be able to self-publish yourself, but there's a lot of work that is required um, in terms of organizing the manuscript, uh, hiring individuals such as editor, indexer, uh, someone to design the covers, uh, someone to design the interior of the book. So there are some challenges there, but it's very rewarding if you can get it all together and uh, actually get it out there. Excellent. So, um, I had a question that I wanted to ask you, and now it just slipped my mind. Oh, God. So are there any um, suggestions that you have for people as far as researching? Like, well, no, that's not what I wanted to ask you. Do you research for other people, or are you only researching for yourself? I am not I researching for others. I Right now, I'm trying to build the publishing company. So I'm more interested in receiving uh, manuscripts to review for consideration for publication. And I would assist in terms of providing feedback 
in terms of, have you considered this? Or you may want to check this resource out. Or you may want to develop this area a little bit more. Okay. So I'm interested in helping to flesh out people's writings. So it's engaging, it's interesting, it's, it reaches its potential. I didn't mention earlier, church records are another great resource to consider. And I talk about uh, a church in Edgefield that the slave owner, Sarah Blair, was a member of. And it was one of these early churches in, in Edgefield that was actually, because of where they were located, they were part of the Georgia Baptist Association at one point. And only after 1804 did they become members of the South Carolina Baptist Association. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, this is just, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm going to say this. I'm so happy that we were able to have this, this conversation. You know, you, Bernice, Gail, Sheila, mm-hmm. you guys were, you know, you guys were my, my, y'all were my beginning. Y'all were my beginning. And it's, it's, it's an honor for me to be able to talk to you guys and to share the people that started me off or that helped me. I mean, I can remember you picking me up sometimes and <laughs> and we go to certain areas. I, I remember that one time you picked me up, I met you at a, at a train station. I don't even remember where we were going, but I was really, you know, y'all have no idea how the influence that you had on me. And I, I hope that you guys never forget that. I know that some didn't. I just want to make sure that you and Bernice and just because you and Bernice are the only ones that's still living now, but I don't want y'all to ever forget that you guys were my beginning and I've never forgotten that. And I know that. And I, I credit you guys as often as I can. You know, when I talk about things, this is what I learned from this person or this is what I learned from that person. I never forget it. And I need you to know that. So well, thank you. It's an honor. I want to say that we picked you up in Southwest DC and we headed to Patricia's place because it was a gathering of the DC area Edgefield group. That's right. That's right. We actually had that. That that was the first, that was the second time y'all had gathered and I came to that yes. second gathering. Yeah. Because it's a lot of people that, for those that don't know, it's a lot of people from the Edgefield area that live right here in DC. And they don't even know that, they, that they're connected to each other. And it was through this group of women and, and, and men, because I think it was at least one man that was in the group, I think. But I can't Husband. remember. Oh yeah. You know, it was between that, those groups of people that we started to recognize, hey, I'm related. I'm related to this person. Well, I'm related to that person too, but I'm related on my mother's side. Or I'm a, and we started, that's, this is where the whole concept of all of Edgefield for me, this is where it all came from. Meeting with these group, this group and learning that they all are related, that we're all related to each other and how possible is it that all of Edgefield is related. So yeah, this, these are these two people that we just interviewed that you guys have watched they're the reason why I'm like that. They, this this is all their fault. So. <laughs> well, I've got a question for you, Natan. Yes. Um, something that, again, Donnie, Donnie and I have spent a lot of time talking, discussing. So taking Virginia, for instance, marriage records, nine times, eight times out of 10, they will have both partners' um, pa- names of their parents. 
which is an enormous, enormous help. I never saw that in South Carolina. And Donya even pointed out to me that on that marriage, on that marriage license, there is a space for people to put the names of their parents. Why don't why didn't South Carolinians of the eight of the nineteenth century and early twentieth century, why didn't they put the names of their parents? I don't want to insult people. <laughs> um, there's a running joke that Virginia had educated gentry and South Carolina just had gentry. Uh, that's one answer. <laughs> uh, number two would be this was relatively new when South Carolina, and I'm talking about the entire state. Charleston is different, but in uh, the state mandating uh, marriage licenses, that started in 1911, I believe. And South Carolina was one of the original 13 colonies for the American Revolution. And it, it took till 1911 before they mandated the statewide. So I can't say why it wasn't done. I, I feel like it was almost a resistance to having to do the work, just doing right. the basics. Because again, it's such know, a... The thing that I've realized, and I learned this because I had, this was a mistake that's in my book. I put in my book that... South Carolina, um, as far as the the death, I think it's birth and death, they weren't mandated until 1915 to start actually, you know, recording death and birth of African Americans, of just people in general. They weren't mandated to do that until 1915. But I found out that that was just Edgefield. So... <laughs> Is it just Edgefield that that didn't do those types of things? Because Charleston was doing that stuff in eighteen in the eighteen early eighteen nineties. They were giving death records for people and and doing um doing birth certificates for people, both black and white. But Edgefield did not do it until they were made. They were like, nope, I don't care. I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. And that's that. You know. I mean, could that have been part of the problem or part of the reason, you know, why they weren't doing it? Because I also noticed, and I don't know if anybody else have noticed, but did y'all ever really look, did y'all look at the 1870 census? There's a date there that actually asks for your birth month and year you were born on the 1870 census, and they completely ignored it. I think there was resistance to doing some of the work that was mandated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. again, that, that's what makes researching in South Carolina more challenging. Because even in North Carolina, you had marriage bonds. Someone had to, someone had to give a financial surety for that. And usually the, the people giving the bonds or you know, signing the bonds we're family members. And again, that just opens up new avenues of research. South Carolina, you get nothing. It's you get the name of the bride, you get the name of the groom, and that's it. And that's it. <laughs> and it's spaces for parents' names. It's spaces for more. It's spaces for more information. And they just simply refuse. It's it's just annoying. I think they, didn't like having, they didn't like having think, to do it, honestly. That's that's my opinion. Yeah. Out of the thousands of edge, uh, thousands of South Carolina marriage records that Donnie and I have seen, I think we've only found one that yeah. gave the name of parents. One. Yeah, yeah. But it wow. is five o'clock. 
Um, but we do have some people. So this is a question to ask you. Both Stephanie Borum and Toy Anders, Anders both want to meet the Edgefield group. Do you ever think we're going to meet again that live in this area? We can try. We can try. Yes. We can definitely try. And, I, you know, with that being said, I am actually trying to do something because, and and I don't know if you're going to be able to, to, to be this person, but of course I would come to you. Um, I'm trying to form a virtual Edgefield Genealogy Society that ha that is under the umbrella of AUGS, but I'm still waiting for chapter information from them to be able to form that. And if we did something like that, you guys look out for something because that's another way that you know you'll be able to meet and talk with everybody. But I'm I'm still waiting for chapter information when it comes to that. But we would be if if this is possible, we would actually be the first virtual chapter. Because all of their chapters live where they are. You know, you have a DC chapter, Atlanta chapter, and so on and so forth. But we focus, our focus has always been Edgefield in one way or another in that area of South Carolina, whether it's Edgefield, Newbury, Abbeville, just that whole old 96 as a whole. If we're able, if I'm able to, I really want to try to get a chapter started when it comes to that. And that could be another way that we can actually get this Edgefield group formed and, and going. But so stay tuned for that. That's a great idea. Lee thank you so much. Would you well, say I, I think it's great because when you look at it, the children of old 96, which we are, um, we're scattered to the four winds. I mean, look, mm. we have a family we have a family member watching us from Hawaii. I mean, that's how far afield we actually are. Right. Oh, don't forget Denmark. <laughs> Denmark. Oh, I Ireland. Ireland. That's right, Martine. We, you know, they, we we get we're, we're all over the place. We're we're everywhere. So to have that type of group, that would be awesome. And um, um, it's gonna be a lot of work. So I want you know, don't think I'm gonna do all of this work. I'm gonna need people to step up and handle this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah but that's and what I'm really hoping I know she may not have the time but y'all need to understand and Nathan knows what I'm talking about but y'all need to understand if we do this we're gonna have a newsletter yes Nathan is the bomb editor she is awesome she's won awards for the home place um, when we had the home, when home place, when we had the, the Edgefield genealogy group through the old Edgefield district, she won awards for it. I hope she'll be able to be the editor for at least one year just to teach people, <laughs> just to show people how to do it, you know, and what it is that we're looking for just to, you know, really make it stand out. Um, but there is a question from from Philly, from Lo, Philly Logan, and he says, um, how to make the most effective connection between family and Edgefield and ooh, it went away and those in other parts of the country. I think this this particular group would be one of the ways. Yes. What you're yes. Okay. 
is the way to do it. Before it was through the newsletter. Yeah. There was a separate chat. There was a separate group, the old Edgefield district, African-American genealogical society, which uh, is now defunct, but that was the way that the diaspora from Edgefield kept in touch. Yep. Yeah, that had a, and, and we heard our stories and we, we heard our stories through those. We heard, we, you know, we were definitely hearing our stories, even if it's just like a, a little article, that's where it all started for me. I think that's where it started for Bernice. I think that's where it started for, for Natan and Gail, because Gail was a huge contributor to the home place. Absolutely. She so, yeah, she has so many stories and so many things that she could tell us. And, and it photos. was just awesome. And photos, yes, and photos. She has so much stuff, and um, yeah. And so I'm really, I'm hoping that I can get it done. But let me hear from the chapter people, and um, once we hear from the chapter people, I'm glad I see that both um, Philly from Philly, he said he has, he's gonna help, and Toy said that she, she will help any way she can. I'm talking about not just helping y'all. I'm talking about serious up becoming presidents and vice presidents, you know, I mean, really stepping in and, and showing out. So we'll see, because we'll see. But Natan, I want to thank you again. It's, it's after five, and um, I want to thank you for, you know, really just kind of talking things up. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything you want to push in there before we go? <laughs> I will mention one thing. The... I do have an article online, Four Steps, I believe it's uh, Four Steps to Identify the Virginia Slave Owner. If you Google my name and maybe type Virginia plus slave owner, it should pop up so uh, people can learn more about the strategies I use to identify the slave owners for four of my, three of my fourth great-grandmothers in Virginia. What is it called again? I believe it's Four Steps uh, to Identify... The Virginia Slave Owner. I cannot recall the exact title. It was several years ago that I wrote it, but it is available online. I'm trying to see if I can find it now. And if I can, I'll definitely post that link um, to it. Said so This says seven steps. Four steps to finding your Civil War. I don't know, but what what I'll do is okay. I'll, I'll I'll definitely um find it and I'll place it on this on this particular thread so that people can get to it because we actually do that as well. Okay, great. Well, thank yeah, you we can for inviting me to participate today. Well, no, oh, our, no our absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, again, thank thank you for um being able to join us. Thank you. So. With that said, that kind of closes us out for Black History Month. What a, what a note to end it on. So again, thank, thank you for that. Uh, Donnie and I are going to be taking a, a short hiatus. Um, season, oh wow, are we really in season three? We're getting ready to start it. Season three starts in September, but between now and September, we'll probably do two, you know, two or three, two or three spe little specials. Yeah, they um, won't be consecutive but they will be coming in. And I can say the first show is going to be a great one because we're going to be talking with Chief Langley. He is um, the Uchean chief from South Carolina, from the Edgefield, South Carolina area. And he's going to talk to us about Native American research. 
So we're going to speak, you know, continue on our theme of learning about all different types of research and just really trying to get it out there for everybody because we just don't feel like it's being covered like it should be in, in these different shows. And we want to get that information out there to everyone. So um, again, you got something to say, Brian? Nope. Just going to follow in um, saying the reason why it's really important to us is while there's always standard best practice genealogy up to a point. So for African-Americans who, you know, um, that would be the 1870 census. And then after that, all traditional routes that you have, but you have to start thinking out of the box and become familiar with just such a vast array of records that other people doing genealogy don't have to have to consider. So again, you know, we'll be looking in the next the, the next season to speak to Jewish genealogists, so they can yes. talk about genealogy. Like I said, we have a Native American speaker who I, you know, you know, I'm down for that. <clears throat> <laughs> but I've been I've been struggling with my Native American ancestry, so I look forward to um to finding out tips and tricks on on how to do that. So um yeah, just kind of really opening it up to I guess what I'm going to call non-traditional kind of things that veer away from the traditional way of having to do genealogy. Right. So okay, guys, see you in September. Outside of any special shows we might try to do for you. But overall, see you in September. Thanks so much for um, watching us and following through. You guys have been great. Thank you for joining. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.